0: So, like I said, last week and the week before that, as as we've been working through Ruth, Ruth, the book of Ruth, the story of Ruth is a prodigal story. A story where a daughter, Ruth, I mean Naomi, a daughter of Israel, a daughter of God, Naomi, goes out full and she returns home empty and bitter and humiliated. Only to be restored by a prodigal father, by a prodigal God at the end. And so God's story follows the familiar pattern of death and division and resurrection and redemption and restoration. So we have darkness and light. We have death and then resurrection. This story follows that pattern. This story follows that pattern. So if you think to creation, God, in the beginning, God created. What did he create? He created the waters, right? And then what did he do? He separated the waters. He created the, earth, the land and he separated the land. And this is where you could see it really clearly. He made man and what did he do? He, God created man and then what, what happened? He put him to sleep and he separated man. And he created woman. And then what did he do? He brought them together. He created man. He separated man. He brought man together. And this is the pattern that God likes to tell stories. Fertility made barrenness, made fruitfulness. Fertility made barrenness, made abundant fruitfulness at the end. And so the story of Ruth points us to Christ and to the good news of God's sovereign grace. But we don't look at Christ like we would look at some museum piece. So we we don't look at Christ and just gawk as if it's a mural, as if He's a mural on the wall. We we look to the good news of the gospel. We look to Christ, um, but we don't just look at Christ. We look through Christ. In other words, we look by Christ. So the Bible calls Jesus the Son, S-U-N of righteousness, and it's by the light of the sun, it's by the light who is Jesus that we see everything, everything. Christ in all of life. We see everything by the light of the sun. So, as we see Christ in this story that follows the familiar pattern of death, resurrection, it instructs us how to live and think as we experience the same pattern over and over all throughout our lives. God weaves this pattern throughout our life death and resurrection. So, let's pray before we begin. Heavenly Father, As the preaching of your word goes forth this morning, I pray that it would challenge us. Lord, where we are wrong, it would change us. I pray that we would be tried and equipped and that our faith would be built up. God, I pray that by the light of your son, we would see everything else and that our lives in their entirety would bring you glory and honor. For Christ's sake, we pray this. Amen. Amen. All right, so... Remember the story of Ruth, all right? If we recall, Naomi and her husband go out to Moab. They sojourn in the land of Moab, in the country of Moab, because there is a famine in the land of Israel. And they're Israelites, they're from Bethlehem. And they go to Moab. And why is that that weird? Why is that surprising? Well, because Moab is an enemy of Israel. They are enemies. So Naomi's husband, whose name is Elimelech, Naomi's husband Elimelech dies, and her two sons take Moabite wives, and after 10 years, after 10 years of marriage, instead of a house full of grandchildren, Naomi is left empty. And her two sons die childless. And this leaves Naomi with only her two Moabite daughters-in-law. So she urges them to go back to their mother's house, back to their land, back to their people, back to their old life. And one goes and one stays. One clings. Ruth clings to Naomi. And what we see is instead of exclusively being this case of charity um, on the part of Ruth, she's, she's insisting on staying a part of Naomi's family. So Ruth is compassionately staying with Naomi to care for her. But it's more than that. Ruth, Ruth is um, insisting on being a part of Naomi's family, of her lineage. And this is, this is why we see when she tells uh, Naomi that famous, famous statement, right? She says, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. But she doesn't stop there. She doesn't say, I'll just be a companion to you. She says, your people shall be my people and your God shall be my God. Where you die, I will die and there will I be buried. She says, I'm going to stay a part of your family. There will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also. If anything but death parts me from you. In fact, this is such a beautiful statement that she makes that this is what we sometimes say at weddings. You'll hear this statement of Ruth, uh, that Ruth makes at weddings. What's odd about that is that it's, a daughter in law to her mother in law. It's not a husband and wife. This is Ruth to Naomi. And what Ruth is saying is, I'm going to stay a part of your family. And so, in the course of 10 years of barrenness and becoming a young widow, Ruth the Moabitess comes to trust in the God of Israel. 10 years of marriage and barrenness and death she becomes a young widow and she and yet she comes to trust in the God of Israel she comes to trust in Yahweh Naomi's God but Naomi only saw bitterness she only sees despair as they return to Bethlehem as they return to the house of bread so chapter 2 however is full of hope and Chapter 2 is where we are introduced to Boaz. Remember what Boaz was called? A worthy man. Ten points to anybody who remembers how it was put in the in the Hebrew. It's not really that important to you, but you'll see why I pointed it out last week. He's called a Gabor Hayil. It's a worthy man or, or a mighty man of valor. A Gabor Hayil. He says... Um, We see in chapter two, Naomi remembers that, oh yeah, there is a worthy man who is a relative of Elimelech. And so we see Boaz show great favor and grace to Ruth because she has shown such kindness to Naomi and Elimelech's family line. And ultimately, ultimately Boaz shows her favor because Ruth has taken refuge under the wings of Yahweh. Just like with Rahab, we see Rahab take refuge under the wings of God and she is shown favor, right? She's spared the, the destruction. So Ruth has taken refuge in Yahweh and she is saved. So we also see in chapter 2 that they are beginning, the love story in, of Ruth and Boaz is beginning to blossom. And, and so over the course of the harvest season. So if... if uh, if it was a movie, this would be this transition scene that just shows the, you know, over the course of the summer, their dates and they're hanging out and they're falling in love. This is what's happening. So Ruth spends the entire harvest season with Boaz and she falls in love. They fall in love. So chapter three begins here at the end of harvest. And if you read ahead, you might be thinking, If you read chapter 3, if you're familiar with chapter 3 of Ruth, you might be thinking, what's happening in Ruth chapter 3? It's a little bit sketchy. It's a little bit sketchy. If you you read it, you know what I'm talking about. But here's uh, John Piper. He's got some wonderful commentary on this chapter. Here's what he says. He says that this chapter, Ruth chapter 3, answers the question... What do a God-saturated man, a God-dependent young woman, and a God-exalting older woman do when they are filled with hope in the sovereign goodness of God? What do they do when they are filled with hope in the sovereign goodness of God? The answer, he says, is strategic righteousness, which he defines as intentional, purposeful zeal for doing what is good and right. Intentional, purposeful zeal for doing what is good and right right when God is reckoned, when God is seen as the sovereign and merciful God. All right. So he contrasts then strategic righteousness, what he calls strategic righteousness with inactive righteousness, strategic righteousness and inactive righteousness. So inactive righteousness would be righteousness that simply avoids evil simply avoids evil. And as we get into um, this chapter, I want you to consider what you are more familiar with. What are you more familiar with? Are you more familiar with inactive righteousness that seeks to avoid evil? Or are you more familiar with strategic righteousness that is decisive and courageous and, it, and dreams of how to make things right? So in this scene, we're going to see how hope births dreams. How Naomi, who is now finally filled with hope by the spirit dreams up this plan to make things right. So here we go. We're going to read chapter three of Ruth. This is the word of the Lord. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law said to her, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you is not Boaz, our relative with whose young women you were. See, she, Let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. She held it and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city and when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. All right, so we see chapter uh, verses 1-5. through five, Boaz is a relative, which means that he can... Play the part of the kinsman redeemer and make barren Naomi fruitful again. All right? So a custom back in the day in the, under the old covenant was the custom of the kinsman redeemer. So if a woman's husband died, the next of kin, usually the brother, would go into her and he would give her a child. And uh, so that child could raise up the name of his brother who has died and that child would receive the inheritance that, that was due to his father, to his brother. So this was already alluded to when Naomi, uh, forgot about all of her kin before and said you know go back to your homes I don't have a husband for you I don't have a husband you know Naomi wasn't saying there are no suitable men in Israel for you to marry Naomi was saying there's no way for you to stay a part of this family I have no more there are no more redeemers so uh she would Give them the child if they, if they were barren. The kinsman redeemer, though, uh, is essentially a hero who saves when there is no other, when there is no other way to save. So it was an office in the old covenant. It wasn't just about children. It was, it was about a lot more than that. The, the word redeemer or uh, kinsman redeemer is the same word that's translated avenger or revenger. This is awesome if you like the Avengers. To me, it's pretty awesome. He, this is, God is our Avenger. The kinsman redeemer had judicial responsibilities in, in the Old Testament. So if someone was murdered, if someone in your family was murdered, it would be the kinsman redeemer's responsibility. The next of kin, re, his responsibility to pursue justice. All right, he would pursue justice, whether it was the execution of the murderer or, or whatever. He would pursue justice on behalf of the victim and execute just judgment on the guilty. You can read about that in Numbers 35. Also, when, when someone became extremely poor or came under great debt or came, uh, came under slavery because of their debt or their poverty, it was the kinsman redeemer who would redeem his family member from their Poverty. He would buy them back or he would buy their land and he would give it to them. He would redeem them back from their poverty. We see this in Leviticus 25, 25. And, and then finally, what we already talked about. When a widow was left childless, it was the responsibility of the kinsman redeemer to impregnate her, to give her a child, an heir, to raise up the name of the dead offspring, to the name of the dead um, father we see that in Deuteronomy 25.5. So being a kinsman redeemer, this is really important. Being a kinsman redeemer, it was a total sacrifice. It was a total sacrifice. Jesus is our kinsman redeemer. It was a total sacrifice. It was a completely selfless task in which the redeemer gives, expecting nothing in return. He would pursue justice, not on his behalf, on his brother's behalf. He would give the, the widow a child, not on his behalf, on his brother's behalf. It was a selfless thing. He would invest in the woman. He would give her a son to redeem his rightful inheritance. And, and, and after, after giving this woman a child and the child growing up to come into his own, he would turn everything that he redeemed over to that child. It would be his. It's the child's. So, but before we get to the redemption, that Naomi, we, you know, you get to chapter 3 here in Ruth, and you can see Naomi can almost taste it. She she's, can taste the redemption. She is now full of faith and hope, isn't she? A lot different than chapter 1 and 2. Before we get to that, Ruth and Boaz have to be married first. And so Naomi lets, lays out this audacious plan to Ruth. She says, Tonight, Boaz will be winnowing barley at the threshing floor. She tells Ruth to get all dolled up and go where he is. And she says, but when you go, stay back and don't let Boaz see you until he's finished eating and drinking. Wait until he lies down. Go and uncover his feet. Now, there are some things we have to know in order to rightly understand this plan, this passage. First, if you look at Hosea 9.1, do we have that scripture? Hosea 9.1, if you look at that passage in Hosea, Hosea refers to the threshing floor as this common site of sexual immorality. He says, you've made love higher on every threshing floor. So Hosea refers to the threshing floor as this common site of sexual immorality. Apparently, it was the place to go, you know? It's like if you think of in a movie, the lookout over a city at night, you know, you think this is the connotation here. Maybe that's the connotation here in Ruth. But anyways, Hosea talks about this threshing floor as common site of sexual immorality. Another thing is, another thing we have to know and take notice of is this phrase, uncover his feet and lie down, is ambiguous. It sounds plain and simple to us, right? Uncover his feet and lie down. But this is a very ambiguous Hebrew phrase. It can mean uncover his feet, but it can also refer to a much more indiscreet uncovering. This is just straight up Bible. This is what the Hebrew phrase, it can mean feet, but it's also this like idiom. It's also this phrase that can mean a lot more undiscreet things to be uncovered than feet. And so... What that means for us is that, um, well, first, let me say, I think it's safe to assume that Naomi is talking about his feet. And I think that's really uh, obvious and simple explanation, because I think what she's saying is, Ruth, go uncover his feet, and he'll get cold, and he'll wake up, and he'll notice you there. But, the, but, the, but regardless, the thing is, we cannot escape the uh, underlying sexual references in Naomi's plan that she lays out to Ruth. There are underlying sexual references in Naomi's plan. And, and this doesn't amount to unrighteousness in and of itself. It's, it's, What it does amount to is a surprisingly daring plan, a surprisingly daring plan that puts to use Ruth's womanly ability to entice a man. Ruth is... You know, Naomi is setting Ruth up, go wash yourself, go get dolled up. She's saying, listen, you're a beautiful woman, entice this man. That's what's happening here. It's not unrighteousness, but it is definitely enticing. So this is the part of the love story in the movie that can easily lead us to a passionate sex scene that you've got to fast forward through and cover up, right? Yeah. This is, a, this is the part of the story that can really go that way or, or on the other hand in the words of John Piper again it, it can be a stunning scene of purity, integrity, and self-control and that's what we see. So at the end of Naomi laying out this plan for Ruth she must have been at least a little bit puzzled because her, mother, her mother-in-law says um, don't worry he will tell you what to do. <laughs> Now, parents, is this the plan that you're going to lay out for your daughter? I just found out this week that I'm going to have a daughter, and there are absolutely zero chances that this is the plan that I would think of. Absolutely none. <laughs> Go in the middle of the night, meet a man, and do what he tells you to do. No, I'm sorry. No, not going to happen. <laughs> no. Let him decide what, what, you know, what you guys should do in the middle of the night on the threshing floor. Mm-mm. But the thing about this plan, though, is it is this audacious, crazy plan that actually shows us that it allows us to see Naomi is demonstrating great faith in God. Now, if you go to this passage, just let me say this, because probably this is going to happen to some people. If you go to this a passage like this and you say, see. We can spend the night together. No, I'm sorry. You've missed the point. Go start back at Genesis and keep reading. You know, come on. You've missed the point. No. This, is, this plan is showing us incredible faith on the part of Naomi. Faith in God's sovereignty. But it also shows us her confidence in this Boaz, right? Right? It shows us some serious confidence in the righteous man, Boaz. He'll tell you what to do. I mean, I'm joking about it with my daughter because seriously, not going to happen. But think about what this means for Naomi. She is saying, this man who has protected you all summer, who has let you glean in his fields, who has given you abundantly more than you deserve, who has kept his young men from assaulting you, you know, he's not going to go and assault you, Ruth, Naomi has great faith in Boaz's faithfulness and his righteousness. And, and what I think you see here is this almost grandmotherly smirk on the part of Naomi where she's like, he'll tell you what to do. You know, just like this, <laughs> this grandma smirking, you know. It's not about unrighteousness. It's pretty incredible, actually. And so Ruth, this faithful daughter, she agrees to everything. She says, what you say, I'll do it. And so, we see in verses 6 through 9, it it says, Ruth, it says, she comes softly. And what that tells us is that Ruth is not just mindlessly obeying. Ruth is not just mindlessly going through the motions of this plan of Naomi's. Ruth's heart, just like Naomi's heart, is wrapped up in this plan. And so, she gently lifts his garment and she lies down. And midnight, Boaz is startled. You know, it says he ate and drank. Maybe he thinks, I did not drink that much. What is happening here? No, I don't think it, that at all. He, he wakes up and he says, what is this woman doing here? He knows, he knows whoa, 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 this doesn't happen. What, what are you doing? Who are you? And she replies with this answer that is unscripted. If you go back and you look at how Naomi lays out the plan, this is a plan of enchantment, of enticement, of seduction, of this you know righteous seduction. And what Ruth now says, Ruth breaks from the script. Ruth, Ruth goes uh, on this unrehearsed answer and she says, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant for you are a redeemer. Ruth, Naomi's plan did not include a direct ask. Naomi's plan included an indirect ask. Come on, come on, please do this for me. No, but Ruth says, I'm Ruth. Spread your wings over me. Mary, put a ring on it. Come on. <laughs> Marry me. Spread your wings over your servant for you are a redeemer. So it, it leaves Ruth in a very vulnerable position. Because she just clearly, clearly, no ambiguity asks for marriage. Naomi's plan was full of ambiguity. Ruth's ask is not ambiguous at all. It is clear and direct. And so it leaves Ruth, who is a Moab, who is a Gentile, asking from Boaz, who is a Gabor Ha'il, who is a worthy man. It leaves her... um, Completely exposed. I mean, think of all that he's done for her. He's given her over and above what the law required in terms of giving to the poor. He's given to her. He's, he's say, said, stay with me all summer and, and, and work in my fields all summer. And here she is just Ruth the Moabite. Now saying, that's great, but, but I want more. Marry me. <laughs> and so it leaves her extremely... Um, exposed it, it leaves her vulnerable and what it is what it is a picture of is it is a picture of Ruth who is throwing herself completely completely upon his mercy I'm at your mercy she's throwing herself completely upon his mercy now where are they on the threshing floor what is the threshing floor this I mean, we'll get back to this in a bit but I mean what is the threshing floor it's a stone. So she's falling on the rock. It's a beautiful picture. It's a beautiful picture. It's interesting to note that the word wings here that Ruth uses has already been used in Ruth chapter 2 verse 12. And guess who used it? Boaz. Boaz used it. And, and, and it also means corners of a garment, which is, you know, going with this plan of Naomi's. Lift up the corners of his garment. You know? So she says, cover me with your wings, cover me with the corners of your garment. And so Ruth and Naomi are aiming at something very specific. Naomi's plan was not involved, like, was not about like, hey, you know, try and get knocked up and then it'll have to. No, it's not at all. Anything like that. No, Naomi's plan was very specific and, and, and it was aiming for a redemption, aiming for a redeemer. But, not only that, Ruth is calling Boaz to remember. Ruth is calling Boaz to remember his own pronounced blessing. So if you go look at Ruth chapter 2, verse 12, you'll see Boaz pronounces this blessing on Ruth. and, And Ruth is saying, Hey, remember what you are praying for me. Remember what you want for me. Please do it. And so, um... It's a, it's insane. Why? Because she's a Gentile and a Moabite, and she's not, not, you know, typically seen at as a worthy candidate for this Gabor Hail, this worthy man. All right. Now, do you remember the scripture I referenced? I don't know if it was last week or the week before. The scripture that talks about um, in Deuteronomy 23:3 that talks about the Ammonites and the Moabites. Why? You know, this beginning part. Well, if, let's look at the scripture. Deuteronomy 23:3. It says that no Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord. No Ammonite, an Ammonite or Moabite shall not enter the assembly of the Lord even to the 10th generation. None of his descendants shall enter the assembly of the Lord forever. Who are the Ammonites and the Moabites? Let's look at their origin story for just a minute because it's relevant to Ruth's story. So as I read this, we're going to go to Genesis 19. As we read this, I want you to try and notice the parallels to Ruth's story. Remember, God tells this story over and over and over, death and resurrection. It's like cycles. So I want you, as we read this in Genesis 19, let's go to Genesis 19. And as we read it, I want you to notice the parallels to Ruth's story. 19, 30 through 38. Are you there? You ready? Here we go. Now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar, so he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we'll lie down with him that that we may preserve offspring from our father." So they made their father drink wine that night and the firstborn went in and lay with her father and did not know when he did not know when she lay down or when she arose the next day the firstborn said to the younger behold I lay last night with my father let us make him drink wine tonight also that you go in and lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father so they also so they made their father drink wine that night also and the younger arose and lay with him. And he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus, both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. That's the origin story of the Moabites and the Ammonites. So, did you notice any parallels? Did you see some similarities between Ruth's situation and Lot's daughter's situation? You know, they're, they're stuck. They're without a redeemer. They're without a husband. The Did you notice the barrenness? The desire for a redeeming offspring? The scheming? The drinking? The uncovering? There is a connection here with the story of Ruth. So what's happening is Ruth is being tested. Ruth is being tested. She's being proven she's being given a shot at the scene and we're going to get to see how she does it we're going to get to see how if she's going to get it right will she follow lots desperate, desperate daughters into their sin or is she going to follow her sinful moabite heritage or is she going to trust I mean, doesn't this also remind you of Abraham, right? God gives him a promise and he says, It's not happening, it's not happening, time's ticking. I think I'll make this happen. How'd that work out for him? It didn't. He had to trust. Lot's daughters, they they say, We need this offspring. I think we need to do this. The difference here with Ruth is that Ruth is trusting. Is Ruth gonna bear good fruit? Is she gonna be rejected? Is she going to bear fruit that is rejected by God like the Moabites and the, Am- and the Ammonites were? We'll see. So it, you remember I said the threshing floor it may have been this commonplace of sexual immorality. We see that reference in Hosea 9.1. Well, threshing floors are also referenced in other ways in the Bible. In, in Judges 6.3, it is, it is a place of Testing. It's a place of testing, uh, of trusting God, he, you know, in, the, in Judges, Gideon says, um, I'll, I'll put this out, this fleece out on the threshing floor. And, and if I come back and it's this, then I know that you're saying this. So it's this place of testing of, of it's a place of judgment. We see in Second Samuel 6, 6. It's a place of sacrifice and intercession. We see that in 2 Samuel 24, 16. In 2 Samuel 6, we see that it's at a threshing floor when the guy touches out to um, steady the ark. And what happens? Judgment, death, sorry. You did not trust God. You did not obey. You are dead. It is also in 2 Samuel 24, um, 24:16, a place of sacrifice and intercession for the people. David is, there's a plague that has come, and so David purchases this threshing floor and builds this altar, and he sacrifices in this, it is this sacrifice on this altar, this place of intercession that saves the people. And so the threshing floor is, is a pretty involved place in the scriptures. And we, I think we see all of it here. We see all of it here in Ruth. So what we see from Ruth and Boaz in this scene is a truly beautiful manifestation of purity and faithfulness. And you can't help but feel the hope that they are anchored to in the middle of the night on this threshing floor. It's it's, it's, It's awesome. So verses 10 to 14, Boaz says, You've made this last kindness greater than the first. There's no doubt in my mind that Boaz is overjoyed, elated that Ruth has looked on him favorably, you know. I I believe Ruth, just like Ruth was pleased when uh, Boaz looked upon her with favor, Boaz, I believe, is, is very pleased to have Ruth's eye, her attention like this, her favor. And so he says, this last kindness is greater than the first, Well, what is the kindness that he's talking about? If we're not careful, we'll just think, you know, you like me, yes! This is even better than the first thing. But that would be way too easy and way too shallow, and that's not it at all. It's not it at all. Boaz is not just saying, yes, you like me, this is awesome. No, look at this. He's pleased and he's overwhelmed, no doubt that Ruth has not gone after younger men, whether rich or poor. So in other words... Ruth is not simply seeking companionship. Ruth is not just seeking companionship. Ruth is not just seeking companionship for herself. Ruth's first kindness was staying with Naomi when she didn't have to. She had no obligation but what Ruth imposed upon herself. She did not have to stay with Naomi, she chose to stay with Naomi, and that was a great kindness. And so Boaz says, you know, this first kindness, staying with Naomi. But now Boaz sees with even greater clarity that Ruth is unreservedly giving herself up for Naomi's sake, for Naomi's redemption. Remember, this is a prodigal story. Naomi, the daughter, goes out full. She returns empty, and she becomes fruitful, Again And so Boaz sees that Ruth is unreservedly giving herself up for Naomi's sake. Ruth is not aiming to see Naomi's wounds lightly healed, we could say. Ruth is not saying, I'll stay with you until you die, and then I'll go do what I want to do. Ruth is not simply trying to look for uh, Naomi's healing lightly. Ruth is seeking Naomi's complete healing. Redemption and complete restoration. So Boaz recognizes this. He recognizes Ruth's great faith and he calls her a virtuous woman. You're going to see why I said Gabor Ha'il. So you remember, Boaz is the Gabor Ha'il. Boaz is the worthy man, right? And so here now, Boaz says, you are a worthy woman. What are we seeing here? We're seeing the puzzle pieces come together. This is the female equivalent. What Boaz says is the female equivalent of Gabor Ha'il. Boaz calls her a, a Ha'il Isha. So we see it's like a lock and a key. This is the phrase, this phrase is used three times in the scriptures. Here in Ruth, uh, in, in Proverbs 12.4, let's read that. Proverbs 12.4, I think we have it up here, says, we have Proverbs 12.4, yeah. An excellent wife is the crown of her husband, and Ha'il Isha is the crown of her husband, But she who causes shame is like rottenness in his bones. It's also used in Proverbs 31.10. Remember, Proverbs 30, Proverbs is the book that comes right before Ruth in the Hebrew scriptures. And so they read Proverbs 31, and then they get to the story of Ruth. They see Proverbs 31.10 says, by pride comes nothing but strife, but with the, uh, I think I put the wrong reference reference there. (laughs) 13. Let's try 13. Sorry, guys. It says, Excellent. Oh, yeah, there you go. 3110. Oh, yeah. Who can find a virtuous wife? Who can find a Hayil Isha? For her worth is far above rubies. So, Gabor Hayil finds his Hayil Isha. The worthy man finds his worthy woman. This worthy Boaz finds an excellent wife. So Boaz assures Ruth with no hesitation that he will do what she is asking. He confirms that he is indeed a redeemer. And he reveals, though, that there is another. There is someone else who is before him who must decide first whether or not to redeem Ruth for himself. And so, like every good story, it takes yet another turn. The plot twists and thickens, and here we go. But listen to what kind of man Boaz is. He tells Ruth, remain tonight and in the morning, if he will redeem you good, let him do it. But if he will not redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until morning. Now, this is a love story, right? Why good if the other guy gets the girl? Why good? I'll tell you why he says that. Because Boaz is intensely confident. He has great faith, but this is, this is an important part. It's not that he has great faith that he's going to get the girl. He has great faith that God, who is sovereign, who deals in sweet and bitter ways, will perform his will. He is acting in such secure faith that God, that his will will remain. And he says, if the other guy will redeem you, good, let him do it. Boaz is not just considering himself. That's what we see. It's a love story. I believe at this point Boaz loves Ruth and Ruth loves Boaz. But what we see here is Boaz demonstrating this reality that we're all commanded as the church to act toward one another. Consider one another. Boaz is considering Ruth and Naomi above himself. And he says, if you are going to be redeemed, good. At this point, Boaz knows Ruth and Naomi are getting redemption. Because if that guy doesn't do it, I'll do it myself. But if he does do it, then praise God, you have redemption. And so he will be pleased knowing that Ruth and Naomi are cared for. And more than that, though, that, that the name of Elimelech will rise again, will live on. And so, verses 15 to 18, Ruth gets home, Naomi asks how it went, and Ruth tells her mother-in-law everything, and he shows her the gift he sent, which is insane, like it's something like 75 pounds at a minimum of barley. This woman, she's strong, which is also what we see described in Proverbs 31. She's a strong woman. Something like 75 pounds of barley she carries in her cloak. I can't uh, I can imagine an excited Naomi And Ruth, you know, she's had this amazing night with her hero, her would be redeemer, but now she's got to wait. She's got to wait. She's got to wait and see if it's going to be him or if it's going to be another. And so now we see this role reversal. We see Naomi calming and comforting Ruth. Isn't that amazing? Ruth, who comes back to Bethlehem saying, what? I cannot be your son anymore. I've got to be a servant. I've wasted all your inheritance you've given me. I'm empty. Don't call me Naomi, the pleasant one. Call me Mara, the bitter one. Now we see Ruth, I mean, Naomi, calming and comforting Ruth, full of hope and faith. And so she encourages Ruth not to speculate one way or the other. It's not something that we should overlook or or take lightly or write off as just, you know, the the storyline. This is incredible. This is the work of the Holy Spirit of God in Naomi's life to restore her faith. And so the once bitter hopeless mother-in-law who pleads with Ruth to leave her is now encouraging Ruth to wait, to trust And she expresses this confidence in Boaz that he will take care of the matter. No questions asked. He will take care of the matter. So, commenting on this chapter, John Piper says this. It's a quote that I I also put in your bulletin because I want you to read it again. But this is what it says. One of the reasons we must help each other, hope in God, is that only hopeful people, Hopeful families, hopeful churches plan and strategize. Churches that feel no hope develop a maintenance mentality and just go through the motions year in and year out. But when a church feels the sovereign kindness of God hovering overhead and moving, hope starts to thrive and righteousness ceases to be simply the avoidance of evil and becomes active and strategic. When a church feels the sovereign kindness of God hovering overhead and moving, hope starts to thrive. And righteousness ceases to be simply the avoidance of evil and becomes active and strategic. So one of the things I am praying for as we go through this series is is a heightened view of the almighty a heightened view uh, that our eyes would be lifted up to see God as he is sitting on his throne. There is no power or principality that can depose him. Let our view be heightened to see God, the almighty. I pray that as we go through this story, the Holy Spirit would give us a Christ exalting vision of God's sweet and bitter providences. So part of the reason we, we're even doing this story in Ruth is because in, in, in our Sunday school, we're going through this suffering and the sovereignty of God. And just this morning, we talked about how God is using this suffering as means of sanctification to conform us to his image. So, so one, of the, one of the quotes that we read, it talked about how our, if our head, Christ our head, bore the thorns, do we think we will not bear pain. You know, if Christ had walked that journey to the cross, do we think we are going to just put on our little house shoes and scurry to heaven? No. No. God is growing us up and conforming us to the image of his son. And so I want to leave us with some questions And, and I don't, I don't, want us to, I don't want these questions to, to spur you to be morbidly introspective. You know what I mean? I don't want you to just look at yourself and say, Oh, gosh, I'm such a, oh, I'm so horrible. No. What I want you, I want you to look at, I want to leave you with these questions, but I want you to consider these things in light of God's grace, in light of God's kindness to you, in light of his supreme sovereignty in, in all things. So as you consider your own life and your situations, Wherever you're at in this room, and I know there's lots of different situations represented here. Lots of different people. When you consider your own life, your situations, your circumstances. First, who are you? Where, where do you fall in this story? Are you going to be like Lot's daughters? Are you going to be like Ruth, Boaz? Are you going to be like or- Orpah, the, the woman who left right at the beginning? so easily convinced to just go away? Who are you? What are you afraid of when you think about your circumstances in your life? What are you afraid of? What are you anxious about? What what things threaten your hope? What things or, or, or what thoughts are threatening your hope? Another question is, how are you being tested how are you being tested? Is God giving you the opportunity to correct and redeem the sinful patterns of your past? You find yourself on the threshing floor. What is it going to be for you? Common sight of sexual immorality? A sight of judgment? Touching the ark and dying? <laughs> or is it going to be a sight of sacrifice? A site a of offering? A site of inter, intercession for your family? What will it be? How are you being tested? Are you, is God graciously giving you the opportunities to redeem the sinful patterns of your past and of your family's past? When you're brought to the stone of testing and judgment, what will the outcome be? What will the outcome be? Will you throw yourself upon the mercy of another like Ruth did at that stone? Or will you try and seek your own way that's what it comes down to. You either fall on the rock or the rock's going to fall on you. You either fall on the rock and be crushed on the rock or you're going to fall under the rock and you're going you're to be crushed by the rock. That's not a good place to be. And so it's my hope that as we grow up in our knowledge of Christ, that Christ Fellowship Church will come to trust and to feel the sovereign kindness of God in all things. We have experienced all kinds of things and we're continuing to experience all kinds of things. I, I mean, I can just look, I don't know everybody's story here, but I know enough stories to know that we, there is a plethora of heartache represented in this room. I, I, are we gonna be a people who trust and who feel Not just know, not just a book up on the high bookshelf. Sovereignty of God. Are we going to be a people who when we are cut, we bleed this trust, this hope. Sovereign kindness of God in all things, the sweet and the bitter. And from a firm hope in God, I pray that we would be a zealous and strategically righteous people who are completely reliant upon the grace and the mercy of Father of God. Yahweh so there's absolutely no clearer place to see that than at the table that we're going to come to this morning there's no clearer place to see the sweet and the bitter providence of God than there's no clearer place to see the sweet and the bitter providence of God than in the cross of Jesus Christ where where we see the broken body and the shed blood of our Redeemer. It's at the cross we see, just like the song says, sorrow and joy flow mingled down. Blood and water at the cross. So as long as our eyes are fixed upon our Savior and as long as we take refuge in His company, hope will not disappoint. So maybe you are hearing this message for the first time, this gospel proclamation. Maybe you know nothing about it. Maybe you know, maybe you know enough to know that you're nothing like Ruth. You're not trusting God, that you have not fallen upon the rock of salvation. Maybe you know that you're, you're hearing this and you know you're nothing like Boaz. You're not considering others. This call to this table, to this altar, is a call to come and die. It's a call to meet our Redeemer on the altar at midnight (laughs) and to throw yourself completely upon his mercy. So, Christians, come and welcome to Jesus. Come to the table. Amen. Amen. The charge is this. Your life is a race, but it is not a hundred meter dash. It is a cross-country marathon, and it's a marathon marked out on a well-worn path. Many faithful saints have run before us, and it is a path that they now line on either side to cheer us on toward the goal and to the prize. And so from the words of Hebrews, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. But not an inactive righteousness, not simply avoiding evil. Let us let us be zealous and strategic. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Run with endurance that takes strategy, that takes a plan. You don't get out there and run a marathon, am I right? <laughs> you don't get out there and, and run with endurance without a plan, without a strategy. And so we avoid evil, we lay aside the weight of sin, and we run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Amen.